Let's pray together. Lord, you are great, and we're going to open your word and have the blessing of hearing it. Your ancient word, timeless and true in our own language. And I pray specifically, Lord, that as your word is heard, that it would not feel as a moralistic burden and a series of rules that must be kept for you to be pleased. Thank you that you have done that in Christ already. His sacrifice is sufficient. He welcomes us into your family. And now we can walk by grace to be sure with steadfast obedience, with great reverence, but we walk in grace and the assurance of your love that saves. Help everyone hear that as we seek your wisdom in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you ever wondered what God wanted you to do next? Has that been a... Has that been something you've struggled with in the past? Today, in this series of questions that you've asked, I want to address the question I've most been asked as a pastor, and that is, how do I know, the, how do I know God's will for my life? And usually what people mean is they have a very specific and narrow decision that they're trying to make. Do I date her? Do I rent? Do I buy? Do I take this job? Do I take that job? They have a life situation, and they want to know what God wants them to do. And because we're, if we are walking with God, if we know that we're children of God, we have a reverence for Him, and it, the bigger that decision is, the larger it looms, the more desperately we want to know what He would have us to do. And that leads, not everybody, but it leads many Christians to do some awfully weird things in the name of finding God's will. For instance, we talk about open doors. And open doors is just an opportunity that was presented to you. Some guy called and wants you to do something. Is that an open door? I should charge through it. Some people talk about putting out fleeces, and if the biblical language is not familiar to you, in the book of Judges, a man who is noted by his fearfulness, his hesitation, when we meet him, he's hiding from enemies. God, I think, somewhat sarcastically addresses him as a mighty man of valor and says, you're the one I'm going to use to set my people free. And Gideon, is that man's name, he basically starts asking God to do tricks with a fleece as proof that it was really God that was speaking to him. So some Christians will talk about putting out fleeces. I certainly did that. When I was in high school, I had entered law school in Mexico where I grew up, but God began to deal with me and remind me of a commitment I had made many years earlier uh, to serve Him as a missionary myself, but I was really torn because I was really enjoying studying law. I was making plans to move back to the United States, keep going here. I mean, I had it all figured out. And in my desperation to know God's will, at that time I was playing a baseball game on a computer. And I made this deal with God. I would pray along and say, if this next guy hits a double, that's law school. If the guy strikes out, that's Bible college. And then he'd hit a single, and I'm like, well, I don't know what to do. I didn't pray for that, so we'll, we'll just do another one. You ever done anything like that? If I get the next four green lights, that means that God wants us to move to West Virginia. 
People do all these mystical, weird things. And, of course, today, it's not just open doors and putting out fleeces. We have random Bible verses that we saw on social media. Hashtag blessed, right? So you just look at your friend who posts the weird motivational stuff, and it's fitness one day and Scripture the next. But he's got four verses with a weird, he's got four words from one verse, has nothing to do with you, with a really cool filter with a, a tattered Bible behind it, and you go, that's it, that's what I'm doing with my life, and you go out and quit your job, and all kinds of weirdness. And my question is, isn't there a better way to know God's will? I'm convinced there is. This sermon is a little different from what I normally do. What I normally do is take a specific passage of Scripture and work my way right through it. We'll be back to that eventually. But today, I want to give you, based on study, on experience, on reading men who are far wiser than I that have written much better than I ever could on the topic I want to help you think through the issues regarding God's will. And one way to imagine it is that God's will is a path, it's a highway with guardrails on either side. This is an approach that you can use. It's not a formula. I'm certainly not going to tell you through this sermon, please don't blame me for that. I have absolutely no intention to telling you specifically what you should do about a very specific life situation unless it's already clearly addressed in Scripture. You've already had the benefit of having this service once, 9 o'clock, again this afternoon at 5.30, by the way. We have a new Sunday service. But one of the things I learned, because I learn as I'm preaching, one of the things I learned in the 9 o'clock service is I'm I'm quite certain that as we begin to explore God's clearly reveal, revealed will, the things He's already told you to do, I'm certain, based on the 9 a.m. experience, that some of you are going to hear something that is very specifically for you. And it's not mystical, it's just right there in print. And at that point, God will put you at a crossroads between choosing between His way and your own. And my prayer and my heartfelt invitation in the name of Jesus is that you would do what He has already told you to do. Because that's actually where you start in looking for God's will. You ask yourself first, is this what I'm facing? Is this, first of all, a moral decision? The first step along the way in seeking God's will is to determine if this is a moral decision. And I'm using moral in a very specific, classic way. A moral decision is you are trying to decide between a matter of right and wrong. What you have for lunch is not a moral decision. Does that make sense? Tacos or burgers, I mean obviously tacos, but that's not a moral decision. It's just a matter of wisdom, and we'll come to that. A matter of right and wrong, and the good news here is, if it is a moral decision, God has already told us His will. God is the creator of the universe and all that is in it, including you. Your heart, your soul, your mind, your intellect, they were all made by God. They were later ruined by sin, but you are God's special and beloved creation. It was his love for what He had made that sent Jesus to die on the cross on your behalf. 
And God, who loves His creation and made us to love Him and to enjoy Him forever, has not left us without very clear guidance. Crystal clear, anybody, an eight-year-old child can read it in the Bible and understand exactly what it means when we come to God's morally revealed will. And we're going to have a lot of Scripture on the screen. Right now, I want you to open your Bible, please, in the book of Colossians chapter 1. And I want you to see how clearly God's Word tells us that God wants to be understood. And we'll hear this in a prayer that Paul wrote down. He's writing to an ancient church, one of the very first Christian churches. These are baby Christians. They're not experts. Paul has never even actually met them. This is a church that has sprung up through the witness of another person. But Paul hears about them, and in Colossians 1, verse 9, he says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. And look what he's praying for. Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Paul says what we're asking for specifically is that you will be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And here's why he wants them to have that. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Do you hear how relational that is? Ever since we heard about the fact that you exist and that you love Jesus, we've not stopped praying for you. What we're praying is that you'll know exactly what God wants for you, that you will be pleasing to Him, and that you will do every good work, and that as you do it, you will continue to know Him better and better. This is what makes the Christian life so exciting. It is an ongoing, growing, changing relationship with your Heavenly Father who is perfectly good. And because your Heavenly Father is good, He has told you in very clear terms, in fact, He has told you in writing already in the Bible you're you're holding, what He wants you to do. So, here are some of the things that God wants us to do. First and most, where it all begins is He wants us to know that He has provided everything we need already in Christ so that we can be pleasing to Him. If you can read this, read 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 3 with me. It says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. Watch. His divine power has granted to us, what? All things that pertain to life and godliness. Your heavenly Father has provided everything you need to live and to please Him. Everything He ever wanted you to become has already been gifted to you. The Greek word there stands for a gift, a grant. We speak of receiving a grant. That's not anything you earn. That is something that is given to you. And the first thing Scripture makes clear that God wants us to do is to be saved. He wants everyone to come to a saving knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ. Look with me, please, in 2 Timothy. It'll be right on 1 Timothy, rather. It'll be right on your screen. God wants people to be saved and to know the truth, and the way that happens is by trusting His Son, Jesus. That's where life begins. That's where you're granted everything you need for life and godliness. 
That is where you begin to understand God's will. Paul is writing to Timothy, a young pastor, one of his very few trusted workers in spreading out the gospel in the ancient Roman Empire. And he reminds Timothy, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved. That is at the heart of God's will. He wants all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. A major American media outlet recently started talking about living in a post-truth time. It's a terrifying concept if you think about it. We are living in a time beyond truth, where truth is now history, and truth cannot be known anymore. Well, in an era of fake news, God who made the world and everything in it, He knows what the truth is. And what pleases him, Paul says, God, who is our Savior, the Father who intends to save, what he wants is for all people to be saved. And he wants those individuals, those ordinary human beings, to come to the knowledge of the truth because there is truth. His Son, Jesus, is the truth. Look, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. What's Paul saying? He's saying, Timothy, I'm speaking at a very specific time in history. At a specific time in history, God sent his son into the world to stand between God and people. And he is the mediator. He is the one that makes peace between a holy God and sinful people like myself. He is the one Savior. He is the rescue or the ransom. He's the one that paid the penalty for my sins. And because Jesus was given to the world, everyone who trusts Him can be in the family of God, can know God, can know the truth, can be pleasing to God who intended to save, and He did so at the cost of His own Son, Jesus Christ. So some of you are coming to church hoping it'll help. This is where you begin. Nothing else I say to this, from this point forward will be of much help to you at all if you don't know Jesus first. See, this isn't a life hack, how do we make our life better kind of situation. Jesus came to give eternal life. He is, He said Himself, the way, the truth, and the life. No one, Jesus said, comes to the Father except through Me. Where does the will of God begin? The will of God begins by trusting the Son He sent. By recognizing that you are a great sinner, but Jesus is a greater Savior. And there's nothing in your life, past, present, or future, that could stand between you and God if the mediator covers that sin and acts as your ransom, as acts as your rescue. In that first hard guardrail of knowing the will of God, this is the main thing that God wants for all people. But of course, there's more. Jesus was asked once, in a very factious kind of way, what's the best, what is the greatest of the commandments? And it was meant to trap him. In Jesus' day, the rabbis would form these warring factions, and they would sit around all day discussing matters like this. Of all of our, all that Moses wrote and all the traditions that we've put on top of Scripture to tell people what Moses meant, what matters most? 
And what they wanted to do is get Jesus in trouble. They wanted to force him to take a side so that everybody else would be against him. Here's how that trap worked out. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he, Jesus, said to him, read it with me. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Let's stop there for a moment. That sounds simple. It is simple. Let's take Jesus seriously. You've been alive for, depending on, you know, what your age is, 13, 14, 50, 60, 70 years. You've been invited into this relationship with God to love Him. How's it going? If God is a person who can be known and who has actually spoken and acted so that you would know Him, His invitation and His explicit greatest commandment to you is to love Him. Practically speaking, how's it going? Would you say that you've loved the Lord your God with everything you have this week at every moment? There's absolutely no response whatsoever. You resemble more an oil painting than a congregation at this moment. That wasn't rhetorical. I want you to ask yourself, how'd you do loving the Lord your God this week? It's hard, isn't it? It's humbling. You know why? You know who I love? I love a lot of people. You know, if I'm honest, who I love most? Me. NFL player famously years ago who went on to destroy my Cowboys, very famously said, I love me some me. And I thought to myself, at least he's being honest. Because we all love ourselves. Sometimes this is presented as reductionistic. You just take care of everything. Oh, it's simple. Just love God and love other people. You have any idea how hard that is? To consistently put the mind, the will, the choices, the plans of God ahead of your own? To turn everything He's given you, your heart, your soul, and your mind, in other words, everything you are is set on acting and feeling and thinking in a way that shows that He comes ahead of you because you love Him? That's the life He's invited you into. When He gives you Jesus as Savior, He saves you, but it's not only blotting your sins away and turning you out to do whatever you please from now on. It truly is the greatest commandment. The greatest purpose of your life is to love God. And Jesus went on, and it doesn't get any easier. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, what does that look like in marriage? That means that I consistently in marriage put my wife's choices, my wife's needs, my wife as a priority ahead of myself. I don't, I don't like that. Practically every trouble we've ever had has been from me insisting on my own way and disobeying what Paul said in another part of Scripture, looking out only for my own interest and not the interests of the other person. Jesus says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And if you're feeling heavy, if it's quiet in this room because you're feeling the heaviness of that commandment, that's the point. 
The point of the law is to make you run to God and humbly tell Him in heartfelt personal repentance, I can't do this. And He will say, I know, that's why I sent my son. And the life that you're being, not only invited but commanded to walk into, is a life of love. And you will blow these two commandments, the greatest commandment and the second one which is like it, you will fail countless times, and God in His great mercy has provided His Son not only as your Savior, but as your permanent advocate. Here's how John explained it. I've written these things to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. What does that mean? You have someone who speaks to the Father on your behalf, and this courtroom is not like any courtroom on earth. Because when you're dragged into a criminal courtroom on earth, the only person who is being judged is you, the accused. And it makes no sense for the accused to say, hey, no doubt, I did it, you got the video, but my attorney's a great gal. And the judge will say, well, congratulations, she seems wonderful, but we're talking about you. No, in God's courtroom, Jesus offers Himself the ransom to cover your sins and the advocate, a permanent reminder, a permanent presence in God's sight that you are accepted, not because of what you've done or will do, but because of what Jesus did. And this life of living out love for God and love for others is only a grateful expression day by day that you grow in and you get better at as you walk along with God. There's a third thing of the many clear moral teachings that God has given us in Scripture. There's one more I want to show you where we're explicitly told this is the will of God for you, and it has to do with you growing in holiness. In other words, that you become progressively, day by day, choice by choice, moment by moment, reading by reading in the Bible, prayer by prayer, obedience by obedience, humility by humility, act of love, act of forgiveness, one after another, you become more like your heavenly Father, which is what wise parents are trying to do in the first place. What a wise, loving father is trying to do is reproduce the best parts of himself in the life of his children. A wise dad who's been a liar and paid the price for it will teach his children not to lie and teach them by his example and point them to the blessings of being truthful instead. Your heavenly Father, who is incapable of sinning, who defines goodness and righteousness, He gave you His Son Jesus so that you could be like Him. And He wants you to grow in this very special biblical term. He wants you to grow in sanctification or holiness. In other words, He wants you day by day increasingly to be set apart for Him so that over time you become more like Him. It's hard to notice on a day-to-day basis, but having been your senior pastor now for 13 years, I can tell you so many of you have grown so much in the likeness of Christ. You're very different people than the people I met 10, 9, 6 years ago. Why? Because you've stayed in fellowship with your Father. You've continued to try to obey Him. You've gone to Him in prayer. You've received His mercy when you failed again, and you stay with it, and you keep walking, and given enough time, you become a very different person. That's growth in holiness, and that's what Paul is talking about here with a very specific and very timely application in the age of the internet. He says to these 
Thessalonians, also brand new Christians. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. You see the walk so far? You've heard what God wants. You've been doing it. We want you to do it more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. In other words, this isn't mere personal opinion. This is a word from the Savior for you. And here it is. Read the rest of it with me. It says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you should know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. This is the will of God, your sanctification. Specifically, Paul says that you abstain from sexual immorality. The Greek word is porneia, from which we take our word pornography. In other words, Paul says the specific will of God is that you grow more like Him specifically by doing one thing. There are other things, but one very specific, clear-cut thing that is the will of God is that you abstain from sexual immorality, that you keep the body that God has given you under control, that your behavior and your use of that body and your use of the bodies of other people will represent holiness and honor, not a passionate lust like the Gentiles, Paul says, who don't know God at all. Why is that so timely? Because you'll find no reference to the internet specifically in Scripture. But it's just a reality. I'm here to normalize the reality of what practically every person I talk to who's honest tells me. Sexual immorality and depravity and lust are pouring through the internet and pouring through your smartphone and ruining lives. Men and women. Professional, godly, experienced, skilled Christian counselors who do nothing else but work in this area tell me that the women are very quickly catching up in the worst possible way to the men. Well, this is vitally important. If your mind is clouded by pornography, if your thoughts are troubled, if your mind is distracted, if your conscience is ruined, if you feel the guilt and the shame of those secret moments... That's so far out of the will of God that it's very, very difficult to believe that He would want anything to do with you at all. And what do people do? They double down and you start a spiral of shame and guilt that leads you further and further away from the peace that God intended for you to have. This is part of the will of God, and this is probably the battle in the American church. We're all connected. I have to be careful to turn my smartwatch off on Sunday because I'm terrified that I'll interrupt my own sermon with a phone call. And that's how pervasive technology is now. If this clear-cut part of the will of God is not surrendered to the mercy, the grace, and the restoration of Jesus, everything else is going to feel very shaky. You're not going to experience peace. 
And some of you need to avail yourself of the mercy of God and get honest with Him, get honest with yourself, and get honest with at least one other person to talk about what's really going on because this roadblock, once you've come to Christ, looms as a mountain in the path of many, many Christians who lead separate, split, secret lives. And it's running them from the inside. These are only three things that I've selected, kind of big, 30,000 foot, clearly the moral will of God for people. He wants people to be saved. He wants people to walk in love toward Him and to other people. And specifically, He wants you as you walk along with Him to please Him, to keep this vitally important part of your existence, your sexuality, sanctified and obedient to Him. That's part of And the first guardrail, in other words, simply this, if it's a moral decision, you have to do what God said, no excuses or explanations. If God has written it down in this kind of clear language, this is the greatest commandment, this is the will of God, this is what God wants, that has to be obeyed without exception whether it makes sense to you or not. Because God, in His kindness, has spoken authoritatively through His Word, and He has told you what He wants. Those are only three things, but they're carefully chosen because they're such huge issues. If you'll turn your study sheet over, you'll find more. Dr. Henry Holloman, one of the godliest men I ever studied with in seminary, provided a list like this way back when I was a seminary student, and I've been working on it and revising it for about 20 years. These questions and these scriptures address as completely as I can make it with His help every moral dimension of what God has already said in Scripture. If you discover that you have a moral question, you can run that moral question through these biblical filters. They won't all come out the same way. They won't all apply. But I guarantee you, if you work carefully through God's Word, you'll see a pattern. You'll see that you're being pushed in one direction and another. And if that's the case, if it's a moral decision, then, Christian, the, word, the task is simple. You do what God says without excuses and without explanations. If it's not a moral decision... It's a decision that requires wisdom. And most of the things I'm asked about as a pastor are not moral decisions. They're questions that regard wisdom. I'm dating these two people. They're both Christians. They're both great. Who should I marry? What do I know? Years and years ago, when I was considering becoming, interviewing to become your senior pastor, we were missionaries. My senior pastor called Mexico to ask if I wanted to be part of that search. And I said, well, gosh, I mean, that's that's huge. That would be very, very, that would be a huge life change for us. What do you think I should do? He said, don't you dare. (laughs) And I understood what he meant, and that was the end of it. Many times people ask other people to make decisions for them, if nothing else, to get some liability for them, right? So then it blows up. They can come back and share the blame and share the trouble. If it's a moral decision, God has clearly spoken on it. You don't require, and maybe God has not spelled out exactly what you are to do. They're not all moral decisions. If, for instance, the question between jobs, if you're being offered, 
a good job in an office that goes with whatever you studied in college, or on the other hand, you're being offered a job in Utah as a hitman, and it pays $10,000 per murder, and they're going to front you $5,000 so that you can buy the gun that's untraceable just to get you started and see how you do, that's a moral decision. That one's easy. If there's no moral dimension, if you've done the work in the Scriptures and there's no moral dimension, it's not a matter of right and wrong, it's a matter of wisdom. What do you do there? Well, for that guardrail of wisdom, God has also provided us a way forward. He's provided a path for us to walk wisely. What's it look like? First of all, it looks like spending time in His Word. When God spoke in writing, He did something extraordinary, so much so that Paul, as best we can tell, made up a Greek word to describe what it's like to carefully, seriously, personally read the Bible. Here's what he said. All Scripture is breathed out by God. That's the made-up term. All Scripture, all of the writings, Paul says, that we have received from God as His Word, it's as if they were breathed out by Him. What's the word picture? God is face to face with you. You're talking eye to eye, nose to nose, face to face with God, and He is speaking forth His Word. And that Word is not metaphorical. It's not out there in fantasy land. It's profitable. It's useful. It's practical. What does it do? It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Four different words. Teaching, reproof or rebuke, correction, and training in righteousness. Those four words in Greek are a stair-step progression. Teaching, profitable for teaching, the idea there is that your Bible, what you're holding in your hands, if you're holding a Bible, is God's entire curriculum. God knows much more than He put in His Word, but everything He wants you to know, He has provided in writing. Everything you need for life and godliness has been provided in His Son, Jesus, in the Holy Spirit that saved you, and in His Word to guide you. That's the whole curriculum. If you've ever taken a college class, college teachers generally provide at the beginning a syllabus, and they plunk down this 50- or 60-page booklet to tell you, day one, here's everything we're doing. That leads a lot of people, I've been in classes like that, they drop that class the next day because they look through the syllabus and go, oh my goodness, what, 50 pages of writing, 14 books i got to read? Nope, not doing it. Paul says Scripture is the whole program. You will not have to look for other books to give you guidance, to give you a better take on what God already knows. And then these other three words, reproof, correction, and training. Reproof means that God exposes what's wrong in your life. Correction means that He puts it where it should be. Training in righteousness means He builds you up and makes you strong where you were once broken and weak. Years ago, I broke my left leg, and an orthopedic surgeon in Mexico had to put me completely under, open up the leg, move some bones around. That was reproof. When he set the bone, that was correction. The physical therapy that followed six weeks later, that was training in righteousness because by the time the cast came off, the leg had atrophied. It had to regain its strength. Paul says when you get face-to-face with God and you 
you let him speak to you in this way, something wonderful is going to happen. The man of God, and of course this applies to women, Paul's writing to Timothy, the man of God may be complete, equipped for how many things? For every good work. Every good thing that God could ever possibly have you do, it's all been provided in Scripture. Now that's God speaking to you. That's where you begin in this path of wisdom. Now, you've done this if you're a Christian many times. As you begin to read the Bible and God begins to breathe His Word out to you through Scripture, you have a tremendous privilege. Not only does He speak, what do you get to do in return? You get to talk back. You get to pray. Not only can God speak to you, you can be honest with God and you can tell Him, as I have many times, including this week, Father, I have no idea what to do. I'm confused. I'm heavy-hearted. I'm so upset by what is happening in the life of this person that I'm starting to get my own mind and emotions involved and I'm afraid I'm going to be selfish or stupid or short-tempered or something because I'm personally upset. Well, what does that do? That opens up a personal relationship with the God who made me and loved me so much that seeing me lost in sin, He sent His Son to die for me. You have any idea what a privilege it is to talk to a God like that and not to have to hide anything from Him because He already knows the truth of everything I'm going to tell Him. You ever fake it in prayer? He knows better than that. See, here in the West, Dr. Bing Hunter used to teach at Talbot. So here in the West, we have this weird little mental game. We have this problem. We think if God knows everything, why tell Him anything? You ever thought about that? Ever been troubled by that? He says the Hebrew way of thinking is different. Since God already knows everything, there's nothing I can't tell Him. I can just come and be honest. He knows. I can sit there in the weeds in my selfishness, in my lack of love for God, in my lack of love for wife or neighbor or friend or child. I can just tell Him, say, you've seen me all along. You love me from eternity past. Here I am in all my messed up splendor. Your word's laying me open. Your word's showing me where I'm wrong. I'm here to ask for help. I'm here to ask for mercy. I'm here to ask for forgiveness. That's the testimony of Psalm 66. Come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell you what He has done for my soul. I cried to Him with my mouth, and high praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. That verse lit me up this week. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. What does that mean? If you've already decided what to do, it's not that God doesn't hear. He just can't listen to those prayers because He knows you're not being honest. You're not being truthful. Does that make sense? If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly, God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my Now here's, let me be very practical, folks. When it comes to gaining wisdom, a daily conversation is better than a diving expedition every single time. What's a daily conversation? Keeping the appointment with God that we've talked about so many times before. For me, this morning, I woke up. I have a helpful friend who sends encouraging devotional thoughts from the other side of the country, and he forgets the time zone. 
So 4.45 a.m., here's an encouraging word. And I had discouraging thoughts about my friend because it's 4.45 in the morning. And then I started thinking, let me tell you about some of the thoughts that raced through my mind at 4.45 in the morning. My own mortality, something one of my sons is doing this summer, the condition of our church, the specific condition of several people who are going through a hard time in it, and what we might have for lunch after church. That's a lot at 4.45 in the morning, don't you think? Is that relatable? So, I managed to get myself back to sleep and woke up this morning and thought, I need to move and I also need to hear from God. How am I going to do that? I walked for about 30, 40 minutes and listened to all of 1 Thessalonians, almost got through it twice. And I just let God's Word wash over me. Does that change anything in that moment? Not necessarily, but that daily conversation cultivates wisdom. It cultivates closeness and honesty. It helped me reframe some of those middle-of-the-night thoughts that I have that keep me awake, that make me the center of the universe, that invite all the pressure on my narrow shoulders so that I can handle this. That's a daily conversation, day by day, Word by word, prayer by prayer. What's a diving expedition? You pay no attention to God whatsoever except for occasional visits to church. And then suddenly life comes crashing in and you say to yourself, now where's my Bible? Or who's my friend that always posts the inspirational stuff on Instagram? Let's see, is there something here for me? And you're just diving in, hoping to get some random thing. Listen, God in His mercy can meet with you at any time. He has committed Himself to guide you every time you humbly seek Him. But a daily conversation and growth and wisdom is so much infinitely better than occasional desperate diving expeditions. Scripture, prayer, and finally, wise counsel. God in His goodness has provided not only His voice in our lives, but the voice of other godly people around us. Without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Did you catch that? A person who only sees it their own way, Proverbs says, is foolish. Proverbs warns elsewhere, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its way is the end of death. You can think you're completely right all the way down. That's why godly counsel and checking with people who really know the Lord is so important. Why is this so important? Because people too many times decide in their selfishness what they're going to do and seek somebody else out to bless it. As I've told you, many times people ask me for specific counsel. I'm always happy to provide it as long as you allow me to give me the freedom to tell you I have absolutely no idea. Here's the path of wisdom you need to begin walking. And they'll say, well, I just want you to tell me what to do. Yeah, I could, but I would be guessing. And you would not gain anything in your closeness and in your relationship to God if you simply ask somebody else to sanction what you've already decided. So, when you've read and when you've prayed, when you've walked along with the Lord, find the person who most reminds you of the Lord. 
fine people. None of us are perfectly like Jesus ever until glory. But if you can find two or three people who model his character, maybe different parts of it, and can show you what it really means to have the mind and the heart of God and humbly ask for advice and lay your situation open and let them speak clearly to it, you will gain wisdom. My practical advice, seek advice, not validation. Don't come to the Lord and come to a wise, godly person with your mind made up and say to them, hiding many of the facts, don't you think this is right? No, tell them, here's what's really going on. How would you advise me? And once you've established these guardrails, you've got God's clear, moral, written word to you on the right. And the other guardrail keeping you in the path of wisdom, here's the most liberating, wonderful thing about God's will. You are free to love God, live to obey Him, and then do, what's it say? Whatever you want. Please note the conditions. I'm not advising you, I don't think Scripture teaches, for you to just go out and do whatever you want. No, first, love Him. Then live to obey Him, even if your celibacy makes no sense to you. Even if your dead-end job does not make sense to you, it's honorable, it's paying the bills, and you don't understand why you have it and why you have to stick with it. But it is what He has provided, and you go out every day, and you do it with the courage and humility of a genuine daughter of God. That's God being glorified in your life. Your difficult relationship with your parents or your in-laws, your submission to authority, even when authority doesn't make much sense. Your love for His church, your determination to do what Jesus said and be a generous giver, even when you fear that you don't have enough for yourself. These are the things God has told you to do. That's what it means to live to obey Him. If you keep that in mind, you can do anything you please, and you'll discover as you go out to do the best you can with what you've already clearly heard from the Lord and the obedience you're already giving Him, you'll discover that God steers a moving object. And you can set out to walk in this direction, and given enough time, He changes your direction and blesses you and introduces you to relationships and closed doors and does all kinds of wonderful things better than you could have ever imagined. But first, you have to love Him. You have to want to obey Him. Then you get moving, doing whatever you please. You won't go far wrong if your honest intent is to love and honor the the Lord your God and to love the people around you the way you started loving yourself. And you'll say, man, this kind of stinks. I've got a big decision. I was hoping he would tell me exactly what to do. Nope. Doesn't work that way. What does God offer instead? What does God command instead? Come closer. Sit and listen. Sit and be corrected. Drag your sins out into the open where I can honestly deal with them. Tell one other godly person in your life who you really are and what you're really doing and get help and get counsel and get grace from them. That's where the real work is. If you make it simply a matter of someone else telling you what to do with your life, you'll short-circuit the greatest adventure you could ever have with the Lord and the greatest life He could ever give you. You love God. You day by day Start now, live to obey Him. 
surrender continually to His grace and do whatever He places in your heart. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you please deal honestly with the families and the individuals in this service? There are secrets that need to come out into the light. There are sins that need to be confessed. Virtues that need to be sought. Relationships and friendships that need to be mended. Plans that need to be changed or made. Only you can do those things. I pray that you would, that you would make it abundantly clear to us. And as we give you, Lord, this financial offering, it's just one simple, heartfelt expression of our genuine love for you. Help us grow in this as we grow in all things. And thank you for providing for us already everything necessary to life and godliness. In Jesus' name, amen.